It's a joy to be with you. I am humbled uh, and honored to have been asked to preach this morning, um, and it really is crazy to think uh, that God has allowed me, uh, that God has allowed each one of us to be a part of what he's doing in Houston um, and here at Sojourn. Uh, and so today uh, I'm preaching, this sermon is the second sermon in a sermon series on holiness. Um, we're talking about holiness. Last week, Drew preached on Isaiah chapter 6, talking about God's holiness. This week, we're in 2 Corinthians talking about our holiness. Um, and we are talking about holiness because, um, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it says this, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness and mission, we, we talk a lot about the mission that we're on, but there is no mission without holiness. And so it's important to talk about holiness. And as we begin uh, to give us kind of, I guess, a definition of holiness, um, you, might be, you might know that the word holy literally means, I guess according to the dictionary, it means uh, set apart. It means other, different. Um, holiness, when we talk about it as Christians, refers to God's unrivaled otherness, the fact that God is in a category all by himself, um, because he is so clean and exalted, um, he is utterly unapproachable by us because we are unclean and lowly. And so when we talk about our holiness, when we talk about man's holiness, we need to understand uh, that our holiness is just a derivative of God's holiness. We are only holy in as much as God declares that to be so. And so as we jump into a sermon on holiness, understand that. Um, and if this is your first time with us, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Um, we, really, we really are. We want to know you. We want to hear your story. We want to know how we can pray for you. Um, and we want you to know that um, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, this is a safe place for you. Uh, we want this to be a safe place for you to bring doubts, questions about God, about the existence of God, about the character of God. Um, because listen, you're, you're in good company. Each person in this room has been in your seat before. Uh, and so this text, this sermon is, is worded uh, in large part to God's people, to Christians, but I trust and pray that God would reveal himself to each of us uh, in this room as we walk through this text. Um, and uh, I guess to get started, uh, I'll tell you, I guess, give you kind of an illustration. Uh, Lindsay, my wife, and I, uh, every, most weeks, we have uh, a group of people over to our house on Wednesday nights. We have our neighborhood parish over. Um, and what that, uh, what that means is that once, one day a week, we get the opportunity to clean our house. Um, and, and the goal there, so, you know, what usually happens, so Wednesday night, people get here, get to our house at 7 o'clock, and so what that means is 6.30 on Wednesday night, we decide, okay, time to start cleaning, uh, and 6.30, we, we hit, the, we hit the, the, the important parts, we hit the living room, the kitchen, if we're lucky, we can hit the bathroom, and then 6.55 comes around, we close the door to the bedroom, close the side doors, because we didn't make it all the way around the house, um, but then people come, we enjoy the evening, and we realize that it wasn't that big of a deal, Right? Um, it wasn't that big of a deal after all. And that's true. There, there are some things that are really nice, but not very important, not necessary. Um, and unfortunately, what we've done is holiness has become, in a lot of ways, in the Western church, in the American church, um, holiness has become that back room um, of the house. And so it's incredibly important, as we see in this text, that can't happen for us as God's people. That can't happen for the sake of who we are as God's people can't happen for the sake of our mission of what God has sent us to do. And so today our text is 2 Corinthians 6, uh, starting in verse 14. Um, and I love this text. It's an important text. Um, what I want to do is I want to look at the context in which this, this passage was written, uh, and then I want to look at what it calls us to, uh, why it's difficult 
for us to heed and hear this call and how Christ meets us uh, in our difficulty. Uh, and as, as we read through, you know, preparing to preach this text, I read through the book of 2 Corinthians, um, which I highly suggest each of you do after we leave today. Um, but as you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, you realize that the whole first half of 2 Corinthians kind of leads up to verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is kind of the pinnacle, the peak of the book of 2 Corinthians, and then everything after that kind of talks out of, Paul, Paul talks out of what he wrote in chapter 7, verse 1. He has gone over all kinds of implications of what God's done for them uh, as a people. And here, in our text, he pauses, Paul pauses, the Apostle Paul pauses to make sure they really do realize what it is that God has done for them and why. And so let's take a, a look for just a moment at first century Corinth, uh, the city where the, uh, to which this, this letter was written. First century Corinth, see, Corinth had been an ancient wealthy city. Um, it had been destroyed by the Romans uh, in 146 BC, so 150 years before Christ, the city had been destroyed, uh, and it sat really vacant and empty by Roman command until uh, the Roman emperor Julius Caesar decided to rebuild the city, uh, remake the city. So in about 30 BC, the city started to be rebuilt, uh, and as a result, in the, in the days of the Corinthian church, the early Corinthian church, it was a relatively new city populated by people from various parts of the empire. It was a city on a pivotal trade route, um, it was attractive to newcomers because it was a place where one could make one's fortune. And unlike other Roman cities, uh, there weren't uh, any natives, really, of old Corinth. All of the old Corinthians had been either killed or sold into slavery, so there wasn't an existing aristocracy. There was a lot of social mobility. Uh, so the Corinthian Christians found themselves in the midst of this exciting city of opportunity, and understandably, they struggled with how to give up their associations with the world. They thought that the gospel of Christ could sit alongside their lives without disrupting them very much. And you see, some of the other early churches were struggling with, uh, you know, falling back into the pagan Greek gods, uh, worship of the gods. Some of the other early churches were uh, running the risk of falling back into the old Jewish law. That wasn't, neither of those were problems in the Corinthian church. What their problem is that their young, uh, immature faith hadn't really, uh, hadn't really done its job of uh, transforming the views that they had adopted from the surrounding culture. Uh, and so to blend with their culture, what the, what the Corinthians really had done is they'd come up with kind of a theology of triumphalism, a theology of victory. They saw that uh, because of what Christ had done, they were living as kings. And this theology of triumphalism, this mistaken theology of triumphalism had eclipsed the theology of the cross, which is where Christ said, my strength is made perfect, not in strength, not in power, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so this theology of the cross, this theology that turned the power structure of the world on its head was a huge departure from the culture of self-promotion that the Corinthians found themselves in. And if you think about it, this is probably why Paul describes the gospel of Christ to the Corinthians as foolishness to the world in 1 Corinthians 1. Um, what the Corinthians thought made them free really had them enslaved to the rat race of social, social climbing and fortune seeking. And as a result of their misunderstanding, they were still caught in this rat race. Uh, they had questionable sexual ethics. Uh, they were suing one another as brothers and sisters. Um, their life was not in line with the message that Christ gave to his people, that he intended to display through his people. And as a result, uh, the work of the gospel was in great danger. So as a result, Paul exhorts them at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 6, in the section just before our text, to, to not receive the grace of God in vain. 
the Corinthian church needed to be reminded that God saved them out of the world to be distinct from the world so that they could, through their holiness, through their set-apartness, display God's glory before a watching world. And as D.A. Carson once wrote, a church full of people who are hungry to impress others and climb a little higher up the scales of social approval will not be a church characterized by deep spiritual unity, will not be characterized by the gospel of Christ. So the Corinthians had become distracted. They were just starting to blend in with the chaos and disunity of a, of a godless world. And it's no surprise then that we come to a passage like this one, starting in verse 14. Let's jump into our text. Let's look, look at how it starts. Second uh, Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This verse, I'll stop here, this verse is often used as an argument against Christians marrying non-Christians. Uh, for good reason. If your number one priority is the glory of God and someone else's isn't, then the first couple of years of a marriage might be okay during the infatuation stage. But when you talk about 20, 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, it's going to be a problem. Uh, and it's used, this verse is used for that, but it can go past that. It can go to other relationships too. You, ask, you start asking yourself as a Christian, you know, do Christians have best friends who aren't Christian? And there's, there's all kinds of relationships it has implications for, but you see, while, while it gives practical advice about how to understand relationships with others, it's far deeper uh, than simply relationship advice. Let's read on. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is another name for Satan or the enemy of God? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Let's see if we can diagnose the problem here that Paul is addressing. Let's look back at how Paul begins chapter 6. I referred to this uh, just a minute ago, but uh, this is 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, Working together with him then, working together with God then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He probably said that because they were running the risk of receiving the grace of God in vain. The Corinthian church was unequally yoking themselves with unbelievers. They were trying to fit nicely along society in ways that were dangerous for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul is showing them is that this is a, a, an issue that's really deeper than relationships. It's what they, it's they didn't understand the nature of the grace that they had received from God. And what was this nature? Uh, what was the nature of this grace that they had received? What, uh, why did God grant them grace? What was God granting them grace from? If you think back to last week, uh, for those of you who weren't with us, Drew preached on Isaiah 6 um, uh, when Isaiah was given a vision of God. And as soon as Isaiah sees the holy God, the king on his throne, uh, in all of his holiness, what did Isaiah do? Uh, we see uh, that his immediate reaction was to exclaim, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah comes face to face with God, and as soon as he sees God in his holiness, he's brought face to face with his problem, his sin. Isaiah needed God, as we talked about, uh, Drew talked about, he needed God to grant him the grace of touching his lips with the burning coal, uh, taking his guilt away, atoning for his sins. And so too did the Corinthians. They needed the grace of God. But you see, I think they got that. I think that they, um, I think that they got that their problem was sin and that the solution to the problem of their sin was Christ. What I think they didn't understand was why God had done that. Um, why did God come to deal with their sins? Let's read on. 
Paul tells, Paul's told the Corinthians not to unequally yoke themselves with unbelievers. He goes through his list of reasons why, and then let's look at how this section ends. Let's look at how this chapter ends. Starting in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's unpack this for just a moment. Uh, Why did God come to deal with their sins? Paul essentially uses three uh, recurring themes from the Old Testament, three promises of God uh, to make his point. You see, God's promises had always centered around the fact that God, uh, God had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden when they sinned. Because God was holy, he had to remove them from his presence. But his promises immediately after Adam and Eve fell, and for the story of Christianity, the story of humanity since then, God had always promised to right his relationship with his people. Uh, and we see that here in verse 16, I will make my dwelling among them. God had always promised to make his dwelling among them once more. And Paul here echoes Exodus 29, Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 31. That promise occurs repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Second, we see in verse 17, Therefore go out from their midst, uh, be separate from them, touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Paul echoes Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20, saying God had always promised, remember, that there would be a day when God would welcome you. And the third promise is, uh, we see in verse 18, God didn't just promise to restore the relationship in general. He told them the nature of the relationship that would uh, one day be. God had always promised them that it would be the relationship of a loving father and his children. I will be a father to you, and you shall become sons and daughters to me. So Paul goes through these promises of God to, tell, to, to try to tell the Corinthians, this is, this is why God saved you, in order to bring about the fulfillment of these promises. Because he's holy and can't stand to be in the presence of sin, God needed to deal with the problem of their sin. What Paul wants to show is that since Christ dealt with their sins, these promises have been realized. He essentially says, uh, you shouldn't unequally yoke yourself. You shouldn't grow in affinity with lawlessness, with darkness, Uh, Because where God dwells in his temple, there is only light. There is only holiness. And get this, you are now that temple. You are the place now where God's glory dwells. I want to make two, I think, very important observations here. First, the temple image is a really important image for us. Paul rests his thesis of, uh, of the holiness of God's people. He rests that thesis on the fact that in Christ, the people of God have become the temple of God, the place where God in all of his glory dwells. In his book, God Dwells Among Us, G.K. Beale, theologian, puts it this way. He said, the temple is not simply a metaphor for the church. The church commenced as an actual temple at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell. And it's the initial phase of the building of the final temple that will appear at the end of the age in fulfillment of the Old Testament temple prophecies. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time right now to go into uh, the school of theology called temple theology, but suffice it to say this. Uh, in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, here, when Paul says, we are the temple of the living God, he says, uh, he says this to remind the church that they must walk in the purity and the holiness that the temples demand. And since, since they are this temple, they are to cleanse themselves from every defilement 
of body and spirit. Since we are ministers of the temple uh, of our holy God, we are called to holiness. Second observation, uh, notice the, the, the order of Paul's words uh, in this passage. Notice the order of his words, particularly in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul roots our, our holiness in our identity, our present identity of God's temple, not the other way around. Uh, forgive me for a moment. He uses an indicative, a statement of fact, to undergird an imperative, a command of God. It's called the indicative imperative uh, comparison. Usually, let me explain this. Usually, uh, an imperative flows into an indicative. For example, if you get hired, then you're an employee. The indicative there, you're, you are an employee, depends on the imperative that you get hired. Right? The command, you, you need to get hired in order for you to be an employee. Uh, or take this example. Um, if you do good things, then you are considered a good person. The indicative is that you are a good person. And that rests on the fact that you do good things, the, in, the imperative. Right? But um, with the promises of God, though, this is backwards. Rather than the indicative resting on the imperative, the imperative rests on and is undergirded by the indicative that God declares to be true of us. In other words, we are to become what we already are. And that's a challenging statement. It's a challenging truth. It's a mystery of God that we spend the rest of our lives working out. That's why we need texts like this to remind us of who we are. We are to become who we already are. So the call in our text is this. Since we are God's temple, we are to be a holy temple. Since we are God's temple, we are to be a holy temple. And this call to holiness has a bearing on each and every aspect of our daily lives. Uh, Steve Timmis, in his book, Everyday Church, uh, refers, thinks back on the book of Leviticus, which is a, which is a book of the Bible, um, often called the graveyard of read the Bible in a year, plans. It's the third book of the Bible. Um, it's, it's got a bunch of seemingly arbitrary rules, but Steve Timmis reflects on Leviticus, and he says this, Leviticus is intended to create this distinctive people by shaping every aspect of their lives, individually and corporately. It's not just about what people did in the temple, it's about what they did in the market. This holiness knows no boundaries. It defines our friendships, marriages, work, leisure, finances, and politics. Every part of the temple is to be pure for God. Every room in the house is to be clean. Accordingly, we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is our call, and that is hard. Right? Why is it uh, that we struggle with this? It's good to look at why we are holy, why we are to be holy, but why is it that we struggle with this? Why don't we take the call to holiness seriously enough? Or if we do, why is it so difficult? Well, let's look at what we get from the text, which I think is particularly fitting. Remember the Corinthians, Paul says, you are unequally yoking yourselves, don't do that. Um, they had gotten distracted because they were more concerned with fitting in with the world than with being distinct, than with the things of God. And because they'd become distracted, they'd grown complacent with respect to their sin. They didn't realize just how much their culture had affected their understanding of holiness. And I think we too could benefit from taking just a moment to examine our culture. And while I can't give a full cultural backdrop, I want to talk about two things. Uh, tolerance and materialism. In a culture where tolerance is the crown jewel of society, uh, no longer are we allowed to decide what is right or wrong objectively. It's all subjective. Um, it's you do you, I'll do me, uh, and we'll be just fine. 
calling sin, sin becomes taboo in an age of tolerance. Uh, this is particularly true in the secular world, in the world outside of the church, but it's also, unfortunately, uh, becoming true in a lot of ways in the Christian world, inside the church. We, we, when I say, hey, what you did was wrong, that's intolerant, and it's really prideful of me because I shouldn't be judging you, right? I don't know what God's doing in your life right now, so I should just be tolerant of the way that you're figuring it out, which happens to be different from the way that I'm doing it. See, the focus on pursuing holiness together erodes when tolerance is king. And let's think for a moment about materialism. Um, we are a materialistic culture, and I'm not, right now I'm not talking about uh, the sense that we like wealth and stuff and we want the latest and greatest. While that's certainly true, um, I'm talking about materialism in uh, kind of a, a scientific, a philosophical sense. Materialism in that um, if, it, uh, if it is matter, it is worth noticing. And if you can't see or touch it, then it isn't real. Um, that's the kind of materialism uh, that I'm talking about. In a materialistic society, uh, morality becomes measured based on external, visible results of certain actions rather than on their internal, uh, intrinsic, ethical implications. For example, uh, the argument over whether uh, premarital sex or cohabitation, living with each other before marriage, that the argument over whether these two things are right or wrong is made based on the percentages of successful relationships that result rather than on whether or not it's intrinsically good or healthy for the people involved. Uh, or take this, uh, in the argument about abortion, uh, the argument is made using uh, survey results of women who were forced to have unwanted babies or making the decision whether this, this child who has a disability uh, will be able to live a happy life with his family. We look at those things rather than on the heart issue, which is whether or not it's right to end life once it started. See, materialism in that it focuses only on what you can touch inevitably ignores God because you can't see him. And when you hear that, you might say, okay, well, then Christians aren't materialists, right? Uh, because they believe in God. Well, we need to be careful because it's unfortunately far too easy for materialism to find its way subtly into our theology. Think about, think about why Paul might write in Colossians 3.2. Uh, this is a famous passage. Think about why he wrote this. He said, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why would Paul say that? Um, I think that because, I think the reason he says that is because if all we think about is the things that we see, then we won't think a whole lot about God. We won't think a whole lot about holiness or what God means for the holiness of his people. You see, the focus on pursuing holiness together erodes when materialism is a reality. Because when morality becomes simply based on the results of certain actions, we start thinking things like, um, if my habit of gossiping actually makes me friends and gives people a reason to talk to me, then it probably shouldn't be that bad after all. We say things like, um, if I can still live a pretty normal life when I look at pornography four or five, six days a week, then it must not be that bad after all. If I can be a normally functioning member of society and still have $30,000 of consumer debt that I'm moving from creditor to creditor, and that's just the way it goes, then it's really not that big of a problem. Uh, because that's just what everyone does anyway. Uh, we, start asking, we start thinking things like that, and we, we say things like, uh, we, we use the word mistake or accident instead of the word sin. We start to see God as a friend rather than as a father. See, with tolerance and materialism at the helm, we start thinking that there are no consequences for our sin. 
We no longer see the consequences as a big deal. Uh, functionally, our questions become, how far can I go with my boyfriend? At what point do I need to turn off this TV? How much can they put in before I have to turn it off? How can I say this without it being considered gossip? We ask questions like that rather than, how is this glorifying to God? We say things like, listen, even if there are consequences, don't worry, because Christ died for those, so it'll all be just fine. And while, yes, that that is partly true, don't mishear me, Um, it is true that God died to pay the penalty for your sin and to bear the consequences. But when we start thinking that way, and we start making those arguments, we flip the reality of what God did on its head in the way that the Corinthians were doing. If we stop fighting our sin, then we really are, by default, living as though God is okay with our sin. God is okay with our sin because of Christ. And that couldn't be more wrong. That's not why Paul wrote, to cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Christ died to pay the penalty of your sin because he doesn't like it, because God is not okay with it. God is holy. He can't stand to be in the presence of sin. And in order to bring his people back into his presence, he had to deal with the problem of their sin and break them from its power so that they could go and sin no more. That is what God did in dealing with our sin. So Jesus' call to us isn't come as you are, period. Jesus' call is come as you are and be changed. Come as you are and be restored. Um, You might have heard this before. Jesus Jesus does say come as you are. Uh, He loves you right where you are. That's completely 100% true. Don't believe anything different. But he loves you too much to, to leave you there. He loves you enough to remake you, to recreate you. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We've been freed from the guilt of our sin. We've been freed from the power of our sin, but we still live in the presence of sin. And it's in the presence of sin in this dark world that the light of the glory of God looks that much more beautiful. We appeal to you, therefore, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't miss the call to pursue holiness. This appeal could come in many forms. Some of us need to be reminded that that back room of your house is just as important as the living room. Some of us need to be reminded that the issue with drinking, dishonesty, gossip, pornography, overeating, anger, self-control, those things need to come out into the light. They need to be confessed, prayed for, forgiven, dealt with. Some of us need to be reminded that heaven is a holy place. That if you don't get excited about holiness, then what are you looking forward to? Some of us need to be reminded of a variety of different things. But all of us need to be reminded of how we get the power to pursue holiness, even when it's hard. Before I do that, though, let me do this. I think that all of us need to be asked this question. Um, You might have been asked this question before, uh, but uh, I think it's good to be asked this question regularly. Picture God in heaven, in all of his holiness. He sent his son to deal with the problem of your sin. He gave you his Holy Spirit to make you able to not sin, to to work the work of Christ in your life. Picture this God who looks at you right now. What do you think the look on his face is? What do you think the look on God's face is right now when he looks at you? Is it a frown because he's waiting for you to get it or you're going to go to hell? Is it a sarcastic head shake saying, oh, if only she got it? Is it that God is trying to avert his eyes because of what you did last week or last night? Or is it a smile because in you he is well pleased? 
listen, if, if your answer to that question is anything other than the fact that God is smiling as he looks at you, then you are wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And it's because ultimately, listen, God's favor, God's pleasure doesn't rest on your ability, your work. Remember, remember the promises of God that Paul talks about? Let's, let's look back at our text for just a minute. Remember the promises that, that Paul lists out that God gave to his people of old. He said, God will dwell with us. God will be our God. We will be his people. God will welcome us. God will be a father to us. God will, we will be sons and daughters of God. We'll listen to some of the promises from 2 Corinthians that lead up to our text. Paul says this, he says, we are the aroma of Christ. We are being transformed in Christ. God is shining in our hearts. God is our comfort. We have life through Christ. The love of Christ controls us. We are the temple of the living God. You see, God spoke through the prophets saying, I will, I will, I will one day, future tense. And God speaks through the apostles saying, you are, you are in Christ, you are present tense. Listen, what do these promises rest on then? Do they rest on our getting this right? Do they rest on our being holy? Absolutely not. Let me read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, a beautiful picture summary of the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, the best you have to offer God are like filthy rags before him. Says that in Isaiah 64, 6. Uh, describes our most righteous deeds as nothing but filthy rags. The word there is used loincloths. What kind of pleasing aroma do you think that conjures up in your mind? Listen, the best you have to offer are like filthy rags, but we are not that aroma. We are the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ spreading in the world because, listen, the promises of God are contingent on the work of God through Christ on your behalf. When God looks at you, he smiles at you because of what Christ has done for you. Because of Christ, then we don't need to explain away the fear of God. Read with me 1 Corinthians 7.1. This is the end of our text for this morning. Paul says this, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Why? Why, why does he include the fear of God? Things were looking so good. Why does he have to refer to the fear of God? Listen, if you ask that question, then that really reveals a misunderstanding that you have of what God has done for you uh, because the fear of God is uncomfortable when there's no solution. It's no surprise that if we're working towards our salvation, then we don't want to talk about the fear of God and we don't want to talk about the holiness of God because deep down we know that we're not there yet. And the lie that we're believing is that there will be one day that we get there in our own strength. And let me call that for what it is. That is a lie. Uh, There is nothing that you can do, literally no thing that you can do to make yourself holy before God. We are only holy in as much as God declares it to be so. And, And in Christ, God has declared it to be so of you. So how do we get the power to live holy lives before God, we remember what Christ did. We lean into his promises and we lean into the power of God himself because God has made us clean through Christ. He sent the Holy Spirit and it is the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us, his temple (laughs) that empowers us to pursue holiness, that empowers us to, to, to rejoice in spite of our sin. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12 uh, verses one and two. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. 
says this. He, he goes through a list of, of these giant men and women, these men and, not giant, uh, these great figures, men and women of the faith, uh, uh, leading up, like through the Old Testament, he goes through this list, the writer of the Hebrews, and then he says this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Sound familiar? Lay aside every weight and sin which sins clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to our sin, looking to our works. No, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life working for something that has already been accomplished. Live your life uh, in the reality of what has been accomplished. As it says in Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand. We do a lot of good works as Christians, but we don't do them because uh, that way God will love us. We do good things because God does love us. Let me close this way. We do need to feel grief over our sin. We do need to be convicted by how we have not been living as a holy people. Some of us do need to hear the call uh, from the Bible to flee from temptation and know that fleeing from temptation, uh, there's nothing too drastic to try. Fleeing from temptation might cost you your job. It might cost you your car. It might cost you your smartphone. It might cost you your relationship. It might cost you, as Jesus himself said, it might cost you your family. But listen, nothing is so important that it is worth trading your holiness. Nothing is so important. We must certainly hear this call. But listen, listen, while that may be true, grief is not the point of this text. Grief is not the point of this sermon. I don't want us to leave here convicted in our failures with our eyes on our sin. I want us to leave here reminded of God's promises with our eyes on Christ. Because listen, uh, Paul, let me put it this way. Paul heard the news from Corinth. Uh, this comes just after our, our sermon text. He heard the news from Corinth uh, that one of his previous letters had grieved them. He called them out in their sin and it had grieved them. And he said, wow, I didn't mean to do that. Well, I did mean to do that. Listen what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, starting in verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And read on in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen, grief over our sin, conviction over our sin, is meant to lead us to repentance. And let's redeem the word repentance for just a moment. It doesn't mean tears, wallowing, sadness. Often we associate it with that, but look at, look at how Paul describes it. Repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Salvation without regret. And in that, Paul rejoices. The joy and thanksgiving that results when the grace of God covers our sin. When we see that, that the grace of God covers our sin, is what Paul is after. And he hears that the Corinthians were grieved into this repentance that leads to joy. And in that, he rejoiced. Listen, um, I guess one more thing. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells the church to forgive the repentant sinner. Godly grief, he says this, he says, godly grief over having caused pain is enough. 
when you sin and you cause other people pain, that pain that you cause them causes you pain, and that is enough. And here's what he says. He says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Listen, we forgive one another. We plead with one another to repent, and we forgive one another. We seek each other's holiness, and we do this together. And as we cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, we see the grace of God more and more clearly. And that is what produces the joy and thanksgiving with which Paul characterizes the Christian life. Work together with him then to appeal with one another not to receive the grace of God in vain. And here is the grace of God, that in Christ we have become the righteousness of God. We are first accepted and declared holy, and only then do we respond with truly joyful obedience. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us, with our eyes fixed on Christ, leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And as we do so, rejoice, for know that it is Christ who is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Let me pray.